Welcome to the Truth in My Days podcast, where we defend the Word of God against the challenges of men. Hello, this is Sonia here with another episode of the Truth in My Days apologetics program. Today, John and I will be discussing the topic of miracles. John, do you think miracles are a good proof for someone making claims to be a messenger of God? Yes, they certainly can be, provided, of course, they're genuine miracles. Uh, Not all claims of miracles are, in fact, true. We know so many faith healers, for example, who claim to be doing miracles. You have a spectacle where they will stand in front of the TV screen and say, someone out there in the audience has a bad back, bad back, but healed. And there's absolutely no way to see whether this has actually happened or not. I remember years ago, I had a coworker who went to one of these healing crusades. And he was seated at a table with maybe a couple of dozen people. And this faith healer came close to the table and said, one of you has cancer. And he was completely shocked by this because his mother-in-law was there and she did have cancer. And he was asking me, how could she possibly know that? He was very impressed. But I said, think about it. She said that it's an easy thing to say because you happen to know somebody there who had cancer. What if you didn't know anybody? You would simply assume that one of the people you didn't know had cancer because you're already predisposed to believe this person. So it's a very easy thing to say because whether anyone does or not, they will believe what she said. So things like this, okay, things like this uh, don't prove anything. There are outright frauds as well, faith healers who hire people to pretend to be and pretend to to get better. But the sort of miracles Jesus did were entirely different. I've never heard of a faith healer who heals people born blind or paralytics or any of the kind of things that Jesus did. Isn't it the case that the evidentiary value of miracles for Jesus took a big hit back in the 18th century? when the famous Scottish philosopher David Hume made a compelling case against them? Yes and no. Yes, he made a case against miracles that did have a great impact on the thinking of a lot of people. Uh, But no, I don't think it was compelling. Well, then why do you think it has such an impact? Well, this was within the Enlightenment era. We've talked about that in another program. The Enlightenment era was the time when there was an ethos among particularly the intelligentsia of society that it's time to get rid of God, to push God out of society. And so that people heard uh, Hume and they wanted to accept what he had to say. That's one reason. And another one is that his arguments delved into areas that the general public just didn't understand very well. So what was the gist of Hume's arguments? Well, his main argument was this. Miracles, he said, if they happen, are exceedingly rare, which means that whenever you hear of one, it is always more probable that the miracle did not occur than that it did occur. Possibly a person reporting it was mistaken. uh, Perhaps he was lying. But it's always more probable that it didn't happen, and therefore we shouldn't believe it. But this, in fact, betrays a profound ignorance of probability, because the conclusion Hume was pushing for actually comes out to say that the more likely thing always happens. An unlikely thing never happens. You should never believe the report of an unlikely event, because for it not to happen is more likely. But that's nonsense. 
For example, your odds of dying in a shark attack this year is about 1,646,000 to 1. So anytime you hear of somebody dying in a shark attack, you shouldn't believe it. And yet it happens, we know. Some people do every year get killed by sharks. The odds of winning the Lotto 649 lottery is 14 million to one. So anytime we hear of somebody, somebody winning it, by Hume's logic, we should think, nope, it didn't happen. So really what Hume is arguing for is a sort of bait and switch here. He's saying if it rarely happens, it never happens. That's what his argument comes down to, and that's wrong. And why do you think so many people fell for it? Well, as I said, there was the Enlightenment ethos, and also many people then and now just don't have a good understanding of probability analysis. And what else did Hume say? He said that people may lie about miracles either for fame or to promote their religion. And here too, this may be true. But again, it runs into a problem in the case of Jesus's miracles. First, just because some people may lie about miracles doesn't mean that all of them do. And in the case of Jesus, there was no fame. There was no benefit from making up these claims of miracles. They were not getting rich from it. They were not getting power from it. On the contrary, all they were getting was cost. They were being persecuted. Some of them be, were being killed. Nobody is going to make up lies about these miracles under such circumstances. Well, his case is not sounding very good so far. What, what else did Hume say? He said that people like telling miracle stories and do not care whether they are true or not. Well, that doesn't sound like a good argument. Yes, it's what's called in logic a bald assertion. I doubt he actually surveyed a significant number of people, or probably anyone, to determine that people actually like doing that. I don't think they do. And it's a moot point, since even if there are people who do like doing that, it doesn't mean that none of the stories are true. Exactly. Anything else? Hume claimed that miracles happen mostly in ignorant and barbarous nations and times not in civilized societies. Is that a good argument? I find it interesting that before Hume was saying miracles don't happen, and now he's saying that they do happen, but in ignorant and barbarous nations and times, uh, though perhaps he meant simply stories about them. Uh, but no, I don't think this is a good argument. I'm not sure what he means by civilized society. The Roman Empire at the time of Jesus was a civilized society, the, the highest civilization on earth at the time. Perhaps he means a civilized society is one that doesn't believe in miracles. Now, it may be the case, in fact, that you hear more miracle stories from places that are quote-unquote uncivilized. But there could be another reason if we look at the account of Jesus visiting Nazareth, the town in which he grew up, we read this in Mark 6, 1 to 6. Then he went out from there and came to his own country, and his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many hearing him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? And what wisdom is this which is given to him that such mighty works are performed by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? So they were offended at him. But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor 
except in his own country, among his own relatives, and in his own house. Now he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. Now, why does it say that Jesus could do no mighty work there? Did he suddenly lack the ability to do the miracles there even though he could do them elsewhere? No, it was because of their unbelief. Exactly. Jesus never did miracles just to show off. Whenever he did miracles, the purpose was always to advance people in the faith. And here in Nazareth, it was not going to do that because they rejected him out of hand. And so he couldn't do miracles in the sense of a self-imposed limitation. Because of their unbelief, they can't be advanced in the faith. He's not going to do them. And if miracles don't happen so much in the modern West, well, that's the attitude here as well. They've already decided miracles are impossible. Miracles are not going to advance them in the faith. They will always find some way to explain them away. So there's not much point for them to be done. Well, I guess except for the people who watch the faith healers. Anyway, any other arguments from Hume? He said that miracles can't prove anything since the miracles of each religion cancel out the miracles of other religions. Does he have a point there? If they all had miracle accounts that were equally documented and trustworthy so that we have the same confidence in all these stories, he could have a point, but we don't. Only Christianity has historically documented miracles. We saw that in particular in the case of the resurrection, and we went through the reasons that we know the resurrection actually happened, and that is the biggest miracle of all. So you think miracles are good evidence for the truth of Christianity then? Well, certainly Jesus thought so. In John 5, 36, he says, But I have a greater witness than John's, for the works which the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I do, bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. In John 10, 25, he says, The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. So he kept pointing to his miracles as proof because fake messiahs can't do miracles. Jesus could. And in fact, he made this the dividing line because he came at it from both sides in John 10, 37 to 38, where he said flat out, if I do not do the works of my father, do not believe me. But if I do, though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and believe that the father is in me and I in him. He constantly appealed to miracles as proof that he is who he claimed to be. When John the Baptist had uh, fallen afoul of Herod and ended up in prison, he was beginning to wonder if Jesus really was the Messiah or not. And he sent a couple of disciples to Jesus asking, are you the one to come or should we look for another? And Jesus answered very simply. He didn't say, bad John, you just have to have faith. What he said is, go and tell John the things which you hear and see, the blind see and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. So he always pointed to miracles, and he didn't just say it. He demonstrated it. You remember the account in Mark chapter 2 when Jesus has a whole crowd around his place, well, it's Peter's place, 
coming for healings and there's a group of four who have a friend who's a paralytic. They can't get near Jesus at the door. So they actually climb on the roof of the building, break a hole and let him down. And Jesus sees this paralytic. He sees the faith of these people. And he says to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and Pharisees are upset about this. How do, why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And Jesus answers noteworthy. He says to them, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, arise, take up your bed and walk. And it's a reasonable question. People might immediately think it's easier to say, take up your bed and walk, because forgiving sins is so much more a task that belongs only to God. But the point Jesus was making, it's actually very easy to say your sins are forgiven you because there's no way to check to see whether the man's sins were forgiven. There's no way to prove that Jesus was false here. But if he says, arise, take up your bed and walk, then he is immediately putting himself to the test because either that man takes up his bed and walks or he's shown to be a fraud. Essentially, Jesus is saying, I can't prove to you that his sins are forgiven, but I can prove to you that I'm telling the truth. And so he continues and says, but that you may know that the son of man has power on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, arise, take up your bed and go to your house. Immediately he arose, took up the bed and went out in the presence of them all so that all were amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. But don't some skeptics say that there was nothing special about what Jesus did? That there are all sorts of miracle workers going around in those days? Yes, yes, you do hear that once in a while. They do say that. But here's the thing. They can't show any of them. And they say there's so many miracle workers going around in those days. Jesus was just one of a crowd. You ask them, okay, where are these others? Who are they? Where's the documentation? They really can't show any. The best they can do is go into the Talmud and point to characters like Hanani ben Dosa and Honi the circle drawer. And these are people who are mentioned in Talmud somewhere from three and a half to five generations after they supposedly lived. No eyewitness testimony. And anyway, they didn't do anything like Jesus. Mainly what they did is something bad happened and they prayed to God and asked for help and it happened. The person had a fever, Hanani prays for him, he gets better. Nothing was done by himself. They demonstrated no power. They did nothing like Jesus. And in fact, when you hear this kind of claim that there are plenty of people going around doing these, there's nothing special about what Jesus did. Remember what we just heard after Jesus told the paralytic to take up his bed, and he did. We read that all were amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Same kind of thing in Matthew 9.33, after Jesus casts out a demon from a mute man. We read, and when the demon was cast out, the mute spoke, and the multitudes marveled, saying, it was never seen like this in Israel. In John chapter 9, verse 32, the story of the man who was born blind and healed by Jesus and then had that showdown in the synagogue with Jewish leaders, he said to them, since the world began, it has been unheard of that anyone opened the eyes of one who was born blind. Now, these kind of comments wouldn't be being made if there are all kinds of miracle workers 
going around doing the things Jesus did. On the contrary, the people's comments are things like, we never saw anything like this. It was never seen like this in Israel. It has been unheard of that anyone opened the eyes of one who was born blind. So it seems pretty clear that no, there were not a whole bunch of people going around doing the same things Jesus did. But couldn't the writers have just made up these responses to make the case for Jesus look better? Absolutely not. Because, you see, if there were actually all these wonder workers doing these miracles, then for the writers to put these words into the mouths of the crowd would discredit their books immediately. When they read something, we never saw anything like this, the people would be saying, of course you've seen it. We have all these miracle workers around. Putting those kind of comments into the mouth of people simply would have instantly discredited the, the books and made the writers look like liars. So no, there's no chance they just made up the responses we're left with the fact that, yes, those were the responses of the people on site. The miracles were indeed amazing. Well, what about this problem? Can't false teachers sometimes do miracles? Won't the Antichrist mislead people with miracles? Will he? I haven't been able to find one passage in the Bible that actually says that. Well, in Matthew 24, 24, Jesus says, for false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. And in 2 Thessalonians 2.9, it says the coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders. Are those miracles? Are they? Aren't they? Well, let's find out. Let's read Isaiah chapter 20, verses 1 to 4. In the year that Tartan came to Ashdod, when Sargon, the king of Assyria, sent him, and he fought against Ashdod and took it, at the same time the Lord spoke by Isaiah, the son of Amos, saying, Go and remove the sackcloth from your loins and take your sandals off your feet. And he did so, walking naked and barefoot. Then the Lord said, Just as my servant Isaiah has walked naked and barefoot three years, for a sign and a wonder against Egypt and Ethiopia, so shall the king of Assyria lead away the Egyptians as prisoners and the Ethiopians as captives, young and old, naked and barefoot, with their buttocks uncovered to the shame of Egypt. Now, we always tend to assume that when we hear the term signs and wonders, the reference is to miracles. But you see what's happening here. God commanded Isaiah to walk naked and barefoot for three years, which he did. And then God said, just as my servant Isaiah has walked naked and barefoot three years for a sign and a wonder. Now, it was certainly a sign because it prefigured what was going to happen to the Egyptians and the Ethiopians. And it certainly was a wonder. We'd wonder about somebody doing such a thing, but it was not supernatural. It was not a miracle. There was nothing miracle, miraculous about a man walking naked and barefoot. So while a sign and a wonder could be a miracle, it may not be one. In fact, in Hebrews 2.4, we read, God also bearing witness, both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. Now, if signs and wonders are actually miracles, why does this passage add with various miracles? It seems to set them into two different categories. So we don't actually know. It's an open question whether the Antichrist will actually be able to do miracles or not. Okay, but what about those Egyptian wise men in Exodus? 
who replicated the miracle and the plagues. Okay, but replicated means do something that makes it look like that. They did have various types of uh, devices and gambits and gimmicks to imitate it. You can turn, you can turn water to look like blood by putting in red powder. They had certain drugs that could make a snake just actually uh, go into an unconscious state where it would be very stiff and look like a stick. So some of the miracles they could emulate. They couldn't reverse anything that God did through Moses. And as soon as it got beyond their ability to fake, they had to stop doing it. But that is a good question. I see. Okay, so miracles are good evidence for Jesus. Hume's case against them is without merit. And the claims that plenty of others also did them isn't true. I've seen that the case for the miracle of the resurrection is very strong, but wouldn't it be great if we could actually prove one of those miracles in the New Testament, prove today that it really happened? We can. Really? I want to see this. All right, turn in your Bible to the gospel according to Mark chapter 8, verses 22 to 25. We read this there. Then he came to Bethsaida, and they brought a blind man to him and begged him to touch him. So he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the town. And when he had spit on his eyes and put his hands on him, he asked him if he saw anything. And he looked up and said, I see men like trees walking. Then he put his hands on his eyes again and made him look up. And he was restored and saw everyone clearly. Now, this is a curious story. It's only in Mark, and it's unlike any other of the miracle stories. Because here it seems that Jesus didn't quite get it right the first time. Here's a blind man, and he asks for healing, and Jesus does it. And he looks up. He says, I see men like trees walking. So he sees, but there's something wrong with his vision. It didn't quite work. Jesus has to touch him again. And only after that was he restored and saw everyone clearly. Now, because it looks like Jesus didn't quite get it right the first time here, this became an issue for commentators for 1,900 years or so, trying to explain why Jesus didn't quite get it right the first time, why he failed. And they came up with all kinds of fanciful spiritual explanations. Jesus was trying to teach some kind of message. You see, nobody knew the real reason because nobody knew what would happen if a blind man was actually healed. We didn't have the medical technology to do that. So until well into the 20th century, it was assumed that a person who was blind had one problem, his eyes didn't work properly. And if you could fix the eyes, then everything after that is fine. And then well into the 20th century, as medical science developed and certain conditions of blindness were, were in fact treated and healed, they discovered a very interesting phenomenon that the best medical minds had not guessed at, never predicted. It was something called post-blind syndrome, first reported by Gregory and Wallace in the Quarterly Journal of Psychology in 1963. And here's how post-blind syndrome works. It turns out that a person who's blind, if he was born blind or blind for a long time, five years or more, he has two problems, not one. His eye doesn't work. Neither does the visual cortex of his brain. You see, the way sight works is your eye takes in 
it's the light signals, and then sends nerve impulses through the optic nerve, which then goes to the visual cortex of your brain, where the visual cortex then descrambles the information, puts it together into the images that you see in your mind. But the body does not like to waste energy maintaining systems that aren't used. This is why you see certain uh, people who are paraplegic and their wheelchairs all the time and their legs end up become very, very thin. The muscles are not maintained. Well, it's the same thing with the visual cortex of the brain. If it's not being used, it gets shut down, doesn't work properly. And so the blind man under these conditions actually has two problems, not one. And what they noted with post-blind syndrome, when they fixed the eye, the person could see, but he couldn't understand what he was seeing. The visual cortex couldn't decode the information properly. The images would blur together. Uh, he could, could see elements of it, but he couldn't separate out things into clear, distinctive elements. There was a, a neurologist, Dr. Oliver Sachs, working with a, a patient codenamed Virgil. That wasn't his actual name. But he received this uh, healing of the eyes, and now he was mixing up everything in his mind. And they're trying to do some therapy, working with him to try to fix it. And he's out one time, and there are people walking. There's a grove of trees behind him, and he mixes it up. Men like trees walking. And it hit Sachs that he'd heard this somewhere before. He'd heard in the gospel according to Mark. And he realized that what's in the gospel according to Mark was not a poetic description. He said it was a clinical diagnosis, clinical description of post-blind syndrome. So the blind person has two problems. The eye needs to be fixed, so does the visual cortex. Now, normally when Jesus healed blind people, he healed both at the same time. He could do that in one fell swoop. We still can't get you know, complete recovery for the visual cortex in many cases. But in this one case, you see, Jesus healed the two things separately. He didn't not get it right the first time. He healed the eyes perfectly the first time. He healed the visual cortex perfectly the second time. And I think that in this one case, he did it in two separate steps. Because although people wouldn't understand until they actually learned to heal some conditions of blindness, and they learned about post-blind syndrome, and then this question comes up, since the best medical minds never predicted that this would happen, how do you get that clinically perfect description of post-blind syndrome in the gospel according to Mark? How did the writer come up with this description? How did Peter see this? Whoever was the eyewitness, how could they see post-blind syndrome happening if nobody knew about it? Well, there's only one way. They wrote down what they saw. They didn't understand why. But they wrote down what they saw. But now, 1,900 years later, we can understand why they saw what they saw. Because now we know that the blind person needs both of these things healed. But that's proof then. The only way they could have seen this is if the person was actually healed. Healed in two steps, but actually healed. So here, we can prove this miracle. To any fair-minded individual, this description here in Mark 8, 22 to 25, is undeniable proof that Jesus did miracles. And once you have proof for one miracle, there is no reason to question the rest of them. 
And so in conclusion, I would say, indeed, miracles are a powerful proof. God can do them. Ordinary people can't. And the only one who really did them is Jesus Christ. And so he is the only one that proves himself to be the true messenger of God. Wow, that's amazing. Thanks for your wonderful explanation, John, and we'll see you next time. Thank you. If you enjoy our content and think this is important material, the best compliment you can pay is by sharing this with your friends and family. This helps us out a lot. Also, if you enjoyed today's program, please like, comment, share, and subscribe to this podcast. We would love to hear from you. Thank you for listening to the Truth In My Days podcast with John Torse. We would love to hear from you. Please feel free to share any questions or comments you may have. You can reach us on Facebook, Instagram, MeWe, and YouTube. Simply search Truth In My Days as one word. Again, Truth In My Days as one word, no spaces in between. And you can connect with us. You may also visit our website for more comprehensive material and to learn more about our ministry. Our website is truthinmydays.com. Thank you. Thank you.